So if a person says, you know, I am this, we, we kind of expect to see certain things. You know, if a person says that they are a musician, we expect what? To see them involved in music, see them play an instrument, sing, do something along those lines that, you know, consistently and, and at a level high enough to justify saying, you know, I could, I could say I'm a musician, but really I just fiddle on guitar a little bit. I'm not a musician. And, you know, that would become obvious very quickly if, you know, I, I had to go toe-to-toe with Paul. He would kick me out of the band. You see, after a while, he'd be like, can we get a real musician in here to, <laughs> to, to help? Uh, because I'm not a musician. But, you know, somebody, I could tell somebody, hey, I'm, I'm a preacher of the gospel. And I would hope that if a person came Sunday after Sunday, they'd say, yeah, that's, that's who he is. That, you know, the, the words fit with, with what he does. Okay, that, we can see that. So when we talk about God wants us to become something, he's saying that he wants us to become at a level that it becomes obvious that, yes, this is a part of who we are. You know, my entire identity is not tied up in the fact that I preach the gospel, but it is something that I am. I am a preacher, and it shows in my life. There are other aspects of my life. That's not all there is to, you know, surprise of some. You're like, wow, you do stuff outside of church? <laughs> this is like teachers, you know. All they do, that's all they just stay at school, right? When you see teachers outside, you're like, wow, you have a life? I thought you just like stayed in the library and read books after you know, class was over or something. But God wants us to become a worshiper. This is universally true for every person who comes to God. There, there is nowhere in Scripture, there is no example of anybody coming to God who does not become a worshiper of God if they're faithful, you know, if they're going to walk with Him. Now, if they reject him, obviously they're rejecting the worship of him. But to have a relationship with God is to worship God. We have to become a worshiper in the process of discipleship in order to please God and in order to be an effective Christian in this world. And so last week we talked about that within that, God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. That We have to get outside ourselves. We have to understand that God is transcendent and that there is more to this life than what we see and experience and that we are worshiping the God who is over all of that. And that it also has to be guided by the truth of Scripture. We don't get to worship you know, whatever is most comfortable to us or whatever we would most like. We have to worship the truth as found in Scripture and follow wherever it leads, which at times can be unpleasant, at times can be incredibly beautiful and powerful, and you know all of that has to find a spot. This week, we're going to look at how we learn. We know our worship is effective. Okay, We know we're worshiping in spirit and in truth when worship leads to obedience. It's that simple. Worship is not complete. The worship of God is not complete until it leads us to obeying God. So we can have the most emotionally stirring, inspiring moment of lifting our hands and singing praises, but if it doesn't go any further than this room, 
if it's something we leave behind in this room and then we go on and get on with life, we didn't really worship in here. We may have participated in something and, and even given a nod to God and, and understood, you know, and celebrated some truth. But worship, true worship of God, always leads to some kind of obedience. Now, when I say some kind of obedience, I don't want you to think that, you know, every time you worship God, we've got to go out and change the world. That's not what I'm saying. There are times that there, you know, God will move in such a way but the obedience that he's looking for at times may be that we simply just become a little more forgiving throughout the week. We worship God in here and God convicts us of something and suddenly during the week we're like, hey, you know, God really impresses on me in the week and we, we just kind of follow through on it. Maybe we show a little bit more love to, to our spouse and our family. May, it, you know, it's, sometimes it's in these smaller movements that just kind of keep happening, but it still led to a form of obedience to God, of denying ourselves and obeying what God has told us to do. And we're going to see an example of this in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, where Isaiah has this amazing worship experience. He has a vision of God that is unique in Scripture. I mean, there are not a lot of people. You probably count on one hand the number of people with a vision this powerful but we're going to look at how it changed his life and how the elements of worship are present in this scene and what we can learn from it. So, in Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 13, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So this is a vision that just kind of takes turn after turn after turn. 
I mean, that started out sounding like pretty awesome, right? By the time you get to the end, you're like, was this good news? Was this a good thing for Isaiah? Or what, what just happened? Because that doesn't feel like a victory by the end of this. And that's really the point. Is worship, genuine worship, doesn't always lead to a place where we feel good about it. But God's will is always accomplished. And in the long run, we will be able to see it's always for a good thing. But worship is this powerful thing where God works in our lives in a way that leads us to obey, but then also leads us to make a difference, to go out and serve his kingdom in whatever way God has deemed fit for that moment. And that's not always the, the success and the victory that we, that we want it to be. Sometimes God sends people to say bad news. Sometimes God has a plan that, you know, we look at it and say, you know, God, I'd, if I could just avoid this, I'd rather do that. And God says, nope, this is the path. Will you obey? And so today, I want us to look first at the elements of worship that are present in this passage. Because this is important for us to be able to kind of lock this down in our mind, in our spirit, to know that there are things, and I'm not talking check mark that every time we come to worship, we got to get like the list of like, okay, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. We're kind of missing the point. But there are elements of worship that will be continually present when worship is genuine, when worship is real. And one is something we just did, and I have no doubt that we did it, and that is adoration. Adoration. Isaiah sees the heavenly court, and what are they doing? They are adoring God. They, they are worshiping in the presence of God, and they are singing His praise. And the angels, which, did you notice what the angels look like? Did you hear that description that they had six wings? And they, you know, in other places they have like eyes all over and everything. It's like no wonder they're always frightening people in Scripture when they show up. Because these are not the beautiful things with wings and, you know, like chiseled Arnold bodies and everything that we see in pictures. These are a different kind of creature. But they're flying and they're, they're, they're singing back and forth to each other. And what are they doing? They're just adoring God in His presence saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When we get a glimpse when we get a vision of who God is, it literally becomes overwhelming to us. And it should. It should. We should when we enter into the presence of God, there should be this idea of like, wait a minute, this is, this is the, the transcendent God. And so he gives this vision and says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train of his robe filled the temple. Now remember, the temple was the place that housed God in the Jewish mindset. And so what is he saying? He's like, man, his robe filled the temple. This didn't even begin to contain God. And so the image that he had of God was that he was so massive, that he was, it was so big that it was mind-blowing. The temple now was basically nothing compared to the, the heavenly vision that he just had. And so... He, he is above all. He fills all. He's on his throne and the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You know what this is not? This is not a Bible study right here. 
This is not just a moment of, hey, let me teach you something that's, that's true, a little nugget of truth that you can take back in your life and try to put into practice. You know what this is? This is truth on an eternal scale being praised, being displayed. This is not a sermon going on right here. I mean, in, in, in all essence, this is just adoring the God who is the creator of heaven and earth and is worthy of every bit of praise that he can get. And that is one of the issues that I see today that stops us, okay? And I mean it stops too many Christians is we want to reduce worship on one side down to, and I hear this from men a lot more than, than I do women, but I, I, and I don't, under, I don't know why. I've never really understood it, but they're like, just give me the sermon. I don't need all that singing. Just give me the sermon. As though just having the facts about God is enough. You know who had the facts of God before this vision? Isaiah. He knew who God was. He knew the stories about God. He'd heard about the Red Sea. He knew God created the heavens and the earth. You know what he didn't have? An awe-inspiring like vision of who God is. And, and he sees this vision and he's like, whoa. He needed more than just more knowledge. He needed an experience with God. And we, if we reduce worship down to just information gathering, we're, we're telling ourselves then that God is simply a mental process to be understood, and that's it. God is more than that. And I'm going to issue a bit of a challenge right now, okay? Let me ask you this. If I can't find it in my heart to join with the heavenly court who sings in praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they're singing it for all of heaven to hear. If I can't find it in my heart to do that, do I really think I'm going to find it in my heart to obey Him when the chips are down? See, if I don't understand who it is that I'm serving, His Word is not going to mean as much to me when it really, really matters. Now, the other mistake that is made Okay, so there's the one of just give me the information about God. The other mistake that is made is that we want it to only be about the, the feeling and the awe-inspiring moment, and we leave obedience out of it. You see, what we see here is Isaiah gets the vision, and he adores God, but what happens? Eventually, it's going to lead to some serious obedience in his life, that he had to have this foundation of worship in order to get there. But adoration is the first thing that's going to happen for every person. If we are going to come into the presence of God, we've got to understand we've got to be able to praise Him. Now, I'm not saying you have to praise Him like the person next to you praises Him because that may not be your personality. But we've got to be able to muster up something. Amen? And, and I mean that. We, there's got to be something that God stirs inside of us. We are created in His image. He is the eternal, almighty God who loves you, who created you, who gave His Son for you, and is coming back again. We should be able to shout and scream and, and, and love Him at some level that shows some excitement and that we are in awe of our God. I mean, there should be something. And so I, I feel like we, we sometimes we, 
we sell God short. And I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if it's embarrassment. I don't know if we're just uncomfortable sometimes. But you know what? I can tell you the moments in my life that God changed my life, they involved moments where I let go and I worshiped God like nobody was watching but him. But you know what? It also didn't stop there. I got such an image of God in those moments that, you know what? I'm up here today because of it. Because it changed my life. Now, does that mean every time I worship, I'm looking for God to... No, as we talked about last week, there are the mundane aspects sometimes, the repetitive nature of, look, I need to worship God. I need to go in and worship Him. It doesn't mean that I'm going to have an Isaiah 6 moment every time, but it's okay. Because all you need is one. Once you get a vision of the holiness of God and, and the power of God... That's enough to make you want to worship Him for the rest of your life. Amen? I mean, it's enough. And so, adoration is the first point. Conviction is the next element of worship. Conviction. So he sees this awe-inspiring, says the train of his robe, you know, filled the temple, it shook the foundations. I mean, he is overcome with the power of God. And then immediately, what happens after that? He gets convicted of his sin. I always find this fascinating because he doesn't immediately join in with the heavenly host and like, yes, God is holy. The first thing he thinks about once he gets this entire vision of God that overwhelms him, the first thing he becomes aware of is his own sin. Why? Because that's what happens when we enter into true holiness. We become acutely aware of our own failures. You see, darkness and light cannot coexist. And basically what Isaiah is saying is, I've got darkness in me. I am darkness. I am in the light, and I am now exposed. Everything about me is now exposed. He was convicted of his sin. This was not a pleasant moment. I need to stress that. This was not a pleasant moment for Isaiah. And by today's standards, in a lot of ways, he might look at worship as having failed him in that moment because of the pain he was feeling. Because when he says, woe is me for I am lost, he's literally like, I'm going to die. He's not like just, oh man, this is bad. I should probably take care of that later. He's panicking. Inside, there is a a genuine fear of God now. I'm exposed. My sin is exposed. God is going to kill me right now because I am unholy and he is holy. And he knows, like, I'm, this is it. And he gets convicted of his sin. Now, again, conviction doesn't always mean that it has to feel like you've gone you know, 12 rounds with the heavyweight champion. Conviction is just simply that moment we become aware of a truth of God that our life is out of step with. Or a step that we need to take. It doesn't always have to be that we're failing. Sometimes we can be convicted to take the next step. Maybe we've been obedient and God's saying, hey, now I need you to do something more. I need you to to take this on. I need you to move forward. The conviction is that moment we become aware of it. 
That is the Holy Spirit convicting us, and it is a genuine part of worship. If we are never convicted to grow, to change, to repent, to confess, if we are never convicted of those things, then I promise we are not worshiping God Almighty. And I can't put it any more plain than that. If you can enter into worship week after week after week after week, and God never wears you out in that. I'm not saying he has to every week. But in 52 weeks a year, you're telling me the holy, almighty God has never disagreed with you and said, hey, buddy, fix it. If that doesn't happen, you're not worshiping God. Because it took Isaiah about a half a second in the presence of God before he's like, uh-oh, it's bad. It's really, really bad. I've got issues. And my people have issues. I mean, he, he suddenly gets there because after conviction, the next step in worship, and they can happen fast, okay? This isn't like it's, you know, again, we've got to check the box of here's how it works, but confession and forgiveness. The instant we are convicted of something, we should go to God in confession. Whether it's confessing to obey, whether it's confessing the, the brokenness and the sin that we have, whatever we're convicted of, we acknowledge that conviction to God. God, I hear you. I hear your voice. I hear what you're doing. I recognize what you're doing, and I confess it to you that you are working on my heart at this moment. Because that's what he does. This, again, is an unpleasant moment. I mean, how many of us like admitting we're wrong? Any, no one? <laughs> you know, we, we just don't like it. But at this point, Isaiah has a choice. And we don't understand that. We, we, this is something we really miss. He's convicted of his sin, and he has a choice to make. Either try to hide from God or confess to God. It's one or the other. Now, what do we see in the Garden of Eden? What did Adam do? We're going to talk about that next week on Sunday night. But what did he do? He tried to hide. What does Isaiah do right here? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He chooses confession. Both equally sinful. But in this moment, Isaiah chooses confession to God. He doesn't try to hide from God. He doesn't try to end the vision. He doesn't try to run from God like Jonah. He confesses to God, I got a problem with my mouth. And you know what? We all got a problem with our mouth. Now, what I see in this is that this was a sin that was hidden in his heart. And when I say hidden, I mean it was hidden. And it was, it was hidden because it was socially acceptable in his culture, and it wasn't seen for the sin that it was. And you know what? We all have that. Okay, I hate to break it to you, but American culture is not perfect. And there are culturally acceptable sins that are repulsive to God that many of us may not even bat an eye at. That we just, we don't even know. We, we don't even think about it. It doesn't even cross our mind as being something that if we were in the presence of God, we would be embarrassed of. And not just embarrassed, but afraid for our lives in that moment because it's like, oh my gosh, God's going to kill me. I'm sin. This is a sin. Wow, this is... It's all a sin. 
And, and that's kind of what he did. He's like, I'm guilty. My whole, we're all guilty of this. And I, it's funny to me that he names it. I'm a man of unclean lips. Like he knows immediately, like this is the problem. Where his culture could mask it and he could lie to himself and his heart could lie to him because the heart is deceitful above all things. One moment in the presence of God and suddenly he knows exactly like, uh, yeah, I got a problem right here. And my entire people has a problem. We're all in this together. We're all broken. And he confesses it to God. And what happens when we confess to God, God has made a promise to us. See, this is the amazing thing. When we confess, we have the promise, and we have that promise completely realized now in Jesus Christ is that we will be forgiven. Confess your sins, and you will be forgiven. God has said, I will separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. You will be forgiven. But we have to confess it to him. And so the instant Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips. I am sinful. What happens? Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned. You see, God didn't want this hanging out between them. He didn't want this to be an ongoing issue. He wanted it solved because there was stuff to do. God had a calling. God had a purpose. God had things he was going to accomplish in this. But this sin was a problem. And so it had to be removed. And he immediately forgives him. He atones for the sin and it's gone. Now this is good news because this is an image of what Jesus Christ has done for all of us on the cross. When we confess and go to the Lord Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we have to confess. And then God does what he does and we are forgiven. And so the fact that God did not destroy him immediately proves God's love and that his promises are true. When he says, I'll forgive you, he did. He forgave him. And so we do ourselves a disservice when we ignore conviction or we try to hide and we don't confess to God and we try to hide it from God. All we're doing is hurting ourselves because God's promises have been made that he will forgive us. And in this moment, it was enough to change Isaiah's heart. That one, it, catching the image of God, experiencing the conviction of God, okay, the adoration, the conviction, and the confession of forgiveness were enough to motivate him to hear the calling of God. Okay, because the calling says what? He says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us. Part of the worship of God, one of the elements of worship of God is that he will call us individually in some way. That does not mean he's calling you to be a pastor. That doesn't mean that he's calling you to foreign missions. It could mean that he's calling you to forgive somebody. But it is a calling that requires action. Okay, we cannot just mentally agree with the calling of God and it be enough. You see, this is a direct question, right? 
Isaiah heard God say, who will I send and who will go? And he didn't say, you know, I agree with that. I agree with that, God. You really should find someone. That's not what he did. But you see, there's a calling that is clear. It is direct. And so here's how the difference, okay? This is an important difference. It's a distinction that can bring all kinds of freedom to your life. Here is the difference between the shame and the guilt that the accuser of the brethren, Satan, uses against people in, in the conviction and calling of God. Okay? Both Satan and God will name your sin. Okay? Now what God will do is he'll convict us to the point we'll name it ourselves. Because we, we, we have to. Satan will come at you with, you've done this, you've done it, and he will pile on for it. But here's the difference. When it's God, it can be resolved. We can be forgiven and we can obey and do the very thing God wants us to do. When it's of Satan and it's simply accusation, it cannot be resolved. It is just this ongoing feeling of guilt and shame and unworthiness that never lifts, that has no direction, that has no calling behind it. It just leaves you stranded in hopelessness. But when God calls, He will convict you of your sin. He will call you to confess it, to be forgiven, and then He will give you a direction that will resolve it. He'll give you something to do a direction that you will know clearly what it is. And that's exactly what happens here. He says, who will go? He knows the calling. I'm going to be doing something for God here. He hears the call of God. And then after that is obedience. Okay, is obedience. Isaiah's experience now, I want you to hear that. Isaiah's experience is not an end of itself. And this is the problem we have with worship in this country right now in our culture is that we think worship is a time frame, a time slot on Sunday morning. I attended worship. I worshiped. Now I'm done worshiping and I go on with my life. Worship is ongoing. It just changes locations and looks different at different times. Because worship and service go hand in hand. We will serve what we worship. Okay? We will serve what we worship. Which means we'll make time for it. Which means we'll defend it. Which means we will invest in it. It will get our heart. And this is exactly the obedience now is... Isaiah says, yeah, I am captured. He's now uh, seen the adoration of God. He's been convicted. He's, heard, he's confessed. He's been forgiven. He's heard the call. And what does he do? He obeys it. He says, here I am. Send me. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple, right? Here I am. Send me. Does he know where he's going? No, not yet. He knows he's being sent by God. But he has no idea what. He has no idea how long yet. But you know what? It's, it's fine. Because he's so captured by God in this moment in worship that his life now revolves around serving God. That's how we know worship is effective. When it changes us so that our life 
begins to revolve around serving God. That's when worship is good. And we know that it's happening because worship will give us that sense of purpose and strength to fulfill that calling, okay? God doesn't just leave us like, okay, go do this, you know, right later, and if it works out, let me know. He doesn't send us on our way on our own. What did Jesus say at the very end? He says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't send us alone, but he will send us. We do have a calling on our lives. Whatever that calling is in your life right now, it will require action to continue to worship God effectively, but it gives us the purpose and the strength to do it. You see, Isaiah got this life-altering, amazing vision of God on the throne, and it changed him, and so he gets the call, who will go for us? And he says, here I am, send me. So what was the call? Listen to this again. Go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Basically, Isaiah's call was to go out and let the people know that they're failing so badly that they won't even understand the message when they hear it. Well, that sounds like a victorious moment, right? I mean, you have this amazing vision of God. And then he's like, okay, what do I do? And he's like, go tell the people they're failing miserably. That's my call. And Isaiah's like, okay, how long? It gets even better. How long? And he said, until cities lie in waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Cool. So let me put this together, God. You want me to go announce to the people that they've completely failed in serving you, and you want me to keep doing it until my land and my people are completely destroyed? Yes. Cool. I'll get right on that. But you know what he does? He goes out. He starts his ministry. He starts telling people, hey, this is what it is. Y'all blew it. And I'm going to tell you, this is what's coming. And he starts telling them that you're going to go into captivity, but hey, one day God's going to, you know, the entire book of Isaiah then is all over the place because he starts talking about how they've failed and how God's going to be faithful and hey, the Redeemer's coming. And I mean, he just starts unloading everything that God's going to do in history, basically. But how would you feel? I want you to put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for just one moment. You just had the most mind-altering life-changing worship of your life. You have been set free from your sin. You are jazzed about the kingdom of God. I mean, this is it. And God's like, okay, here's your, now here's your assignment. Go and speak to people who aren't going to listen to you until they're destroyed. How would you feel about that? Would you feel betrayed by God? Would you be like, well, God, that's not what I signed up for. Can't we do something good? You see, in today's world, we'd have a real problem with that. And yet, Isaiah's like, okay, that's what God wants. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve him. 
And the vision he had of God gave him the purpose and the strength to be able to do that during that time. It gave him the ability to get through the difficult calling that he had. And so, worship does the same thing for us today. Okay? Worship brings us to a place where we reconnect with God, with what is good, and our purpose and strength in His Spirit is renewed to go out and fulfill His calling for our lives in a dark world. Okay? It, it enables us to go endure the hatred of the world. It enables us to go and love our enemy as ourselves and to pray for those who persecute. It enables us to obey the Word of God in a dark world. That's why we come back to praise and worship over and over and over because we're finite people. We can only take in so much and we can only do so much. And God knows that. And that's why he ordered creation to say what? Hey, six days, be busy. One day, take a break because you need to recharge. And oh, and worship me on that day so I can recharge you. Worship, praise, enter into my presence. Get a renewed vision for who God is. And then take that out and go serve him. See, worship in here should be the recharging station for life out there. It shouldn't be the thing we do that is disconnected from the rest of life. It should be the source for the rest of life. That helps us get through the week. And you see, how many times in scripture are we called to give praise, thanks, and worship to our God as an answer to the challenges of life? Just read this. I mean, we have an entire book called the Psalms that is like, I will praise you anyway. Yes, even though 10,000 fall at my side, I will praise you. Over and over, we just keep coming back to praise him, give him thanks, praise him, give him thanks. There's a reason. It keeps our mind focused on him. And so in Hebrews 12, 28, he says it like this. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. With reverence and awe. Enter into that worship over and over because of what God has done. What has He done? He gave us His Son as a sacrifice for our sins, who died, was raised again on the third day, was ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, and lives to make intercession for you. And is one day coming back. That's enough to worship and praise for a lifetime. That is enough reason right there to worship and praise. But there is one more added benefit that worship offers us. Not only does it lead us to obedience, but it also offers spiritual protection through life. In Luke 4.8, Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And it is a temptation that is so strong that I promise every single one of us in this room would have been like, yep, I'm in. Okay, we would have dove headlong into it. But Jesus resists him with the word of God. And what is it? It says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Notice he goes back to worship. You should worship and serve him and that's it. That's all you need. And Jesus links two things together right here that, that God did too. I mean, he's quoting scripture that worship means service. To serve something is to worship it. 
in a sense. And when we say serve in this instant, I don't mean that we just volunteered a little bit. I mean when we offer ourselves to it, that it's going to get our best, it's going to get our heart, it's going to get our life, it's going to get our emotions, it's going to get everything consistently. We're going to make room for it in our lives, and we're going to make sure it is the most important thing all the time. That's what we worship. When we worship God, and he commands us to worship and serve only him, when we worship him, he protects us in life from the spiritual attacks, from everything that comes our way. It doesn't mean we won't have problems. It means that he will get us through those problems. It means that he will protect us from Satan being able to derail our faith, that our faith will be victorious even through the difficult times. And so we praise him for that protection. We praise him because of his protection. We praise him because of what he has done for us. But I want to close with, I want you to listen to Psalm 46, 1 through 11. Because this is the heart of a worshiper right here. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Now, that's pretty dramatic. Don't, don't miss the imagery. The earth gives way. I don't know about you, but if the earth fell out from under my feet, I might have reason to fear. And yet the psalmist says, nope, I won't fear because I have God. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Worship reminds us of that truth every time we enter into worship. We get the calling of God to go out, and he reminds us, I'm with you. And so, one simple question to close. Is my worship leading me to obey God? In even small ways, okay, don't allow, don't, don't let your mind go to, you know, something huge. and Maybe God has a huge calling on your life and you're avoiding it. If it is, then yeah, you need to think big. But maybe God's just wanting you to take a few steps in forgiveness. But you're so wrapped up in bitterness and anger, you don't want to let go. Take those steps. Follow that calling. Trust Him with your heart. But ask yourself this question throughout the week. Is what you are doing with God in worship, leading you to obey. When we worship God, we do obey. And if we need to make changes, we make changes. God's grace is there. He will convict you of the right answer. He will call you. He will forgive you. We can confess and we can move forward. 
There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but we have to follow him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. God, thank you. God, that we get to enter into your presence day after day after day. There's no limit to how often we can come into your presence. God, that is an amazing truth. And Lord, I pray that you, you convict us of that truth, God, that we would celebrate it. God, that we would be willing to enter into your presence in adoration. God, that we wouldn't reduce worship down to information gathering, but it would be a true celebration of who you are. And Lord, I pray as we go through this week, God, that our worship of you, our service to you, would intertwine with each other so much that our lives take on your flavor. God, that we would fulfill the calling you have placed in our lives, God. Whatever it may be, God, that we would seek it wholeheartedly, that we would pursue it, that we would trust you in it, and God, that you would be glorified. Father, teach us how to become genuine worshipers so that our lives reflect that we are worshipers. That people would see us and know that they worship God Almighty, that they, that they are those who are, are known by the name of Jesus Christ, who follow him and him alone, and that the worship in their lives reflects Teach us how to become worshipers, God. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Let's